in the heart of downtown State College on the corner of Beaver Avenue and Allen Street. And this episode is dropping on Wednesday, February 20th, 2019. I uh, hope uh, if you had a, a long weekend for the President's Day holiday, you, you enjoyed that. For today, uh, we're going back to talking about Center County Reads, and this is a great episode. We have the author of this year's Center County Reads book. We have Katie Fallon as our featured guest. Uh, Katie's the author of Vulture, The Private Life of an Unloved Bird, which is, of course, the Center County Reads uh, 2019 selection. Uh, Katie is a Penn State, uh, Penn State alum. She is the founder of the Avian Conservation Center of Appalachia, which helps, uh, is dedicated to conser- conserving wild birds through research, education, and rehabilitation. She's also the president, currently, of the Mountaineer chapter of the National Audubon Society. She lives in West Virginia with, uh, with her family. And, uh, and she will be coming on April 4th to the Nittany Lion Inn. That will cap off this, this year's Center County Reads program. But uh, Katie, obviously, if you haven't read the book yet, uh, or, um, or if you have, you know that she is has a great love of birds and you'll hear uh, that in this interview uh we have got we've finally received uh, a big collection of vultures so if you haven't had a chance to read it it, it is at the library or, or you can put it on hold to get it so you can take part and and find out more about the turkey vulture it's, it's a fascinating book that kitty wrote about this bird that uh, as as the title mentions, it's kind of unloved. Not too many people like vultures, um, and and you'll get a better, I think, understanding appreciation of their importance to to the ecology in in our in our world. So hopefully, you enjoy our conversation with Katie. One note: we had some recording issues when we recorded this interview. She wasn't here; I had to record it uh, online. And but you'll hear everything. You'll hear her responses. I just had to. We just had to go back and re-record some of my questions. But that's why some of the uh, audio might sound a little different. But uh, you hopefully you enjoy our conversation with Katie Fallon. And and after the interview, we'll go talk about some of the programs that are coming up with regards to Center County Reads. Today we're uh, joined with uh, Katie Fallon, who's the author of this year's Center County Reads book, Vulture, The Private Life of an Unloved Bird. And uh, Katie, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Um, now, I guess the first thing I want to ask, in your bio, it says your first word was actually bird. <laughs> I guess I wanted, was curious about how that came about. Was your family showing you a lot of birds when you were uh, when you were little, or how, how did? Is there a little story to that? How how that became your first word? Well, um, that's what my mother says. My first word was. 
Um, she says that she was holding me in front of the window, kind of showing me birds outside at the bird feeder, um, saying, look at the birds, look at the birds. And I just said bird. Um, so I, I believe her. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess she talked a little bit about, um, how your love of, of birds and, you know, I know specifically with vulture, but how that how that developed over time in, in whether in your college or, you know, beyond college, how you developed a, such an interest and love of, of birds? Well, um, I, I'm not sure. I've always sort of loved birds. Um, when I was a kid, I had a pet, little pet parakeet um, who lived in my bedroom with me. Um, he probably didn't have the greatest life, but he was my buddy. <laughs> um, and then when I was in undergraduate school, um, at Penn State, I worked at a pet store where uh, we raised a lot of captive-bred parrots. So I I enjoyed working really closely with the birds there. Um, and then after um, undergraduate school, when I left Penn State and uh, moved to West Virginia, I started working with some um, wildlife rehabilitators and got my hands on wild birds um, and tried to help them. And I'm still doing that you know, uh, almost 20 years, about 20 years later. Hmm. So I think I've just, I guess it's been kind of a gradual birds, birds, and more birds. <laughs> um, and now I, spend, and, uh, now I spend, um, you know, a, a portion of every day, um, dealing with injured wild birds or non-releasable birds that I do educational programs with. That's great. Um, yeah, I think I actually I think I saw a news report. That, did, did you do something recently for um, one of the places you're involved with down in West Virginia with a with a, with a bird? Yes, I mean we do stuff all the time. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, one of our most recent uh, one of our most recent projects is we're building an enclosure for an owl. Um, so that was in um, a couple of newspapers here. Uh, we have a non-releasable barred owl um, that we are building a nice new enclosure for. Um, so that's a sort of an ongoing project. There's always something with birds, um, going on that we're, that I'm working on. It seems never ending. Yeah. I guess specifically with, with the book, um, I guess first of all, can you talk about what it was like to, to pitch the idea to publishers? I mean, did, was it, did you have to sell them on, on publishing a book about, about the turkey vulture or how that, how how was that process for you? Well, yes. So turkey vultures, um, surprisingly, they're not the most popular bird. Um, I, I think if I wanted to write, you know, a book about eagles or hawks or owls, um, I probably would have had uh, more interest sooner. But uh, I, I think turkey vultures are just, they're fascinating. I find them beautiful. They're very important to healthy ecosystems and I thought that they really uh, needed a book, and I, I knew I could write about them um, with a lot of enthusiasm. So uh, my, I have an agent who um, worked on you know, selling the book for me on a proposal and a few sample chapters, and some of the publishers that we approached were um, interested, but thought, you know, more, more like morbidly curious, maybe, uh, you know, <laughs> what is this, you know, what is this, um, person writing about vultures for? 
it's it's almost a subject that you 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 might stop and say, what is it about vultures that would make someone you know write a book about them? I should pick that up. <laughs> so on on one hand, I think that the unpopularity of the bird kind of uh, generate generated generated some generated some interest. And it's been I've had a lot of fun talking to people about vultures since the book has come out, and I've been really surprised that a lot more people like them than I realized. Um, I you know you kind of feel like you're the only one sometimes <laughs> who really likes kind of this weird ugly bird that eats you know dead things, but it turns out that they have a lot of friends, uh, and I've been really really glad to meet a lot of people who like birds. A big part of your book is obviously the travels and uh, you had and meeting people who have a love of birds and the turkey vulture. Can you talk about some of the experiences that stood out to you? Sure. So I was uh, kind of surprised and happy to, to discover that there are turkey vulture festivals, you know, gatherings um, in several places throughout the U.S. and really throughout the throughout the world. Um the first Saturday in September is uh, my one of my favorite holidays, which is International Vulture Awareness Day, uh, which is celebrated at you know zoos and nature centers um, all around the world. But here in the U.S., there are several tur- turkey turkey vultures in Hinkley, Ohio, uh, and they have uh, music and uh, uh, art, vulture-themed art. Um, a craft show with lots of vulture-related uh, objects for sale. Um, they have educational presentations and um, a place where you can go and watch turkey vultures flying. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to go to some of those places. You almost feel like you're, you know, kind of with your people <laughs> when you're at a, when you're at a, at a turkey vulture festival. Uh, there also are a lot of just general birding festivals where people can sometimes get excited about turkey vultures or um, hawk migration sites. Um, hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania, um, you can see turkey vultures almost every day of the year. Uh, not not as frequently in the winter, but when you're out there on one of the lookouts, um, there's very, very often turkey vultures flying when nothing else is flying. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're just beautiful to watch. Um, even though maybe up close they're a little bit strange with their kind of wrinkly red, you know, naked heads. <laughs> um, when they fly, there's, there's, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than a, a turkey vulture flying. I mean, they're very graceful. They hardly ever flap. Um, they just look very uh, peaceful, kind of. I think it sort of slows my heart rate a little bit to watch turkey vultures flying because they are so peaceful. Another great thing about your book is that you went back into history and looked at how some past societies had actually a high opinion of the vulture. Can you talk about the research you you did on that and some of the surprises you found? Sure. Well, in uh, in the old world, um, ancient Egypt, for example, people had a very high opinion of vultures. Um, There's a there are are a few uh, vulture goddesses in ancient Egypt. Um, one of the important ones was the goddess who protected the pharaohs, and she was also the goddess who protected women in childbirth, uh, which is kind of interesting. You don't usually think of a vulture as a bird of birth. I mean, you 
often think of them, you know, as a bird of death. <laughs> um, but uh, in in the idea is in ancient Egypt, people watched vultures feeding their young, and they since they feed them kind of it looks like bloody bits. It's really it's regurgitated um, carrion, so it is bloody bits. But it's people thought the vultures were harming themselves and feeding their babies pieces of themselves. So this kind of gave um, the ancients the idea that vultures were harming themselves in order to feed their babies. So that showed that they were excellent mothers. Um, There also was a belief that all vultures were female, um, in part because in a lot of the species, ancient Egyptians were seeing the male and female looked similar. So they thought that they were both female um, taking care of the babies and they were, you know, harming themselves to feed their young. So they sort of saw them as these protectors of young and, um, ideal mothers. And you can see, um, the symbol, the hieroglyph of the vulture goddess on a lot of ancient Egyptian art. Um, the art from King, uh, Tutankhamun's tomb has lots of vulture goddess all over it. She's usually kind of up in the corner, um, her wings are usually kind of, kind of either open or sort of half open. Uh, sometimes, sometimes the vulture goddess wears a crown, um, but she's almost always kind of up in the corner whenever there's a picture of a pharaoh, sort of watching over the pharaoh. Hmm. I think that's really beautiful, and we don't think of turkey vultures here in the U.S. nowadays <laughs> with quite as much respect. <laughs> Was there a moment when you thought the perception changed? Uh, and you mentioned in the book how the vultures now become like this menacing figure. And I think you mentioned in your book in these animation and cartoons where the vultures, this dark, dark figure that's uh, lurking about. Yes. Yeah. I mean, anytime you see a vulture in a cartoon, it's it's not usually like a happy, you know, super vulture. It's often like the villain is the vulture. Um, they're, they're often depicted as like sneaky, you know, kind of waiting around for something to die. Um, and I think that's probably why we don't have a very high opinion of vultures is that we, we think that they're these kind of scary, you know, dark birds that just sort of wait around for something to die. Um, and it makes us think about, you know, our own mortality and the fact that, you know, when we die, something might be waiting to eat our bodies, uh, which can be kind of unsettling. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, it, but it, and certainly when we die, things are going to eat our bodies um, regardless. But vultures are kind of big and in your face about it. And uh, it can be a little scary or I guess of kind of a visceral experience. If you see a bunch of turkey vultures or black vultures eating a deer, you know, along the side of a road, uh, you know, they get right in there and just tear chunks off and swallow them. And, um, doesn't, it's not a very, it's a little bit irreverent maybe. I mean, <laughs> or it looks a little bit, a little bit, uh, just, I guess, unnerving for people. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly why people think of them as greedy or sneaky, uh, other than, you know, they're not going in there and with their talons and killing anything. They're just kind of, you know, waiting around. So 
maybe, you know, maybe people uh, interpret that as dishonest or something, but, um, but it's just what they do. And it's a good thing they do it because we'd have an awful lot of uh, dead stuff around, um, especially on our roads. If we didn't have efficient scavengers, such as the turkey vulture. Yeah, the importance the turkey vulture plays in protecting the environment is obviously an important part of your book. Do you feel that you've changed minds with people reading this book and some of the the talks that you've had? Um, I think so. So uh, one of the threats to turkey vultures, so we have a lot of turkey vultures. On the population level right now, they do, they're doing fine. Um, they're probably increasing in number. They... You know, maybe one of the only birds that are, you know, really are doing quite well. Uh, they've made good use of um, human subsidies, is what Keith Goldstein from Hawk Mountain calls uh, when the vultures kind of use humans, uh, our trash, our roadkill, stuff like that to survive. Um, but they still face some threats. And one is when they eat or inadvertently eat little pieces of spent ammunition, um, they can get lead poisoning and become really sick or die. And I think one of the important things about my book that I realized is that a lot of people, a lot of hunters don't realize that leaving pieces of spent ammunition, like in a gut pile in the woods could be poisoning birds. Um, often when you, um, you know, kill, kill a deer, for example, you take the stuff you want, you know, and you leave the kind of the awful, like the intestines and the stomach and stuff uh, in kind of a pile. And then that can be wonderful for the scavengers. And if you think about a natural system where the big predator would go in, um, kill its prey, take, take what it wants, and then leave the leftovers for scavengers. I mean, really our deer hunters and our vultures and eagles it's the same natural system we are just the big predator going and taking what we want so the vultures and the eagles and the hawks and the other scavengers um really benefit from the leftovers from human hunters and that's a good thing however uh if they swallow little pieces of spent ammunition inadvertently um it can make them sick so turkey vultures can handle a lot more lead in their systems than bald and golden eagles, for example. It only takes a very small amount of lead to make a bald eagle very sick, where turkey vultures can eat handle a little bit more. Um, but you can virtually eliminate this threat to scavenging birds by, um, you know, using copper or steel ammunition or bow hunting, um, which is, you know, you don't use any you use an arrow, you know, you don't use any, uh, you know, metal ammunition, I guess, except the arrow. Um, we actually have a few friends of ours who are, uh, bow hunters. And when we get vultures or black vultures into rehab, um, we sometimes feed them chunks of meat that have been donated to us, um, by some of our friends who, uh, hunt deer with, with bows. Hmm. Um, and the turkey vultures and black vultures love their, their chunks of deer rib. I mean, they get very excited about it. Like, it's it's probably a lot tastier for them than, you know, the, the lab rats and mice that we normally feed. Yeah, we have some, we have a, our, our small organization here is um, in West Virginia. is called the Avian Conservation Center of Appalachia. We see about 
400 injured wild birds a year. And we have some pretty gruesome freezers filled with uh, all kinds of dead animals that we use as food. We've got squirrels, fish, uh, lots of rats and mice, deer, quail, um, chicks, lots of worms. (laughs) (laughs) You're obviously coming back here in April for the visit. Uh, Can you talk about any fond memories you had of your time here at Penn State as a student? Yeah, I loved uh, my time as a Penn State student. Uh, I love Penn State. Um, I get back there whenever I can. My in-laws actually live in Center County, so um, I get back to the area pretty often. They live out in the Spring Mills area. Um, But when I was a student at Penn State, um, I started out as a wildlife and fishery science major, and I always liked writing um, and, and English and reading and literature, but I sort of thought, you know, I should get the degree in wildlife, and I can still always write about it without a degree in writing. <laughs> um, and then it just kind of switched at some point. I I didn't do very well in chemistry. Um, I think I'm not the only one. <laughs> and uh, but I I really really enjoyed my my first year English class at Penn State. Um, my professor was a graduate student in the English department and. Uh, I, I think I was the only one in the class who understood and laughed at his jokes. So that was <laughs> maybe an indication that I, I was in the wrong major. So I, I eventually switched to English um, and I, I loved it and I, I enjoyed it. Um, enjoyed it very, very much. Uh, I, I also really enjoyed hiking and spending time in the natural areas at Penn state um, Shingletown. Um, I used to go hiking in that uh, Shingletown a lot and I also spent a lot of time at Shavers Creek and Stone Valley when I was a student. Um, I loved visiting the non-releasable raptors that they have um, out at Shavers Creek. So that was always fun as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I also um, spent some time hiking on the Mid-State Trail and Roth Rock State Forest. Um, that Penn State area has a lot of really great um, outdoor areas uh, to explore. That's what's great about having your book part of the Center County Reads program. We're having an event at Shavers Creek and just all the, uh, because this area loves nature and the environment, there are just so many things to have, to be involved with, with this book, uh, part of the Center County Reads program. Well, I, I'm excited that my book is part of a the program at um, Shavers Creek and, and just Penn State in general. Um, I mean, Shavers Creek is just a really great, a great place for kids to go to camp. Um, it's also just a great place to go and wander around. You know, if you've not been there, um, there, you know, a lot of nice trails, um, Lake Perez, um, is really, really a great place to go and watch the sunset. Um, and, uh, and of course the, the birds, um, Shavers Creek has done a really great job, um, with their, their non-releasable birds, um, you know, getting them, using them in educational programs. Yeah, Shavers Creek just had a big expansion with its facility, so it's it's very very different now. Yes, yeah, I haven't been there since um, you know, since they've been working on expanding it, but it looks it looks great. I can't wait to visit and see the their new bird enclosures. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely think you'll be impressed uh, with that. Um, finally, a question I ask uh, guests on the podcast is about a book or books that have impacted their life, either as a as a kid or more recently so um are there any book or books that have that have made an yeah may have made an impact on you 
Well, there have been a lot. Um, I, I always wish I could read more than I do. Um, I have three little kids right now. So reading, I, I read a lot of children's books, <laughs> um, but of uh, regular adult books, I, I feel like I only read three or four pages at a time and then someone um, calls me away from it. But uh, definitely one of my favorite books that influenced me a lot is Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey. Um, I have probably read Desert Solitaire, you know, 20 times. Um, and I love it. If you haven't read Edward Abbey, um, you should check him out. Um, he died in the 1980s, unfortunately, but he wrote a lot about um, the desert Southwest primarily, but he was actually from uh, Pennsylvania. So um, Desert Solitaire is probably my favorite book. Uh, I also, a book that's a little bit more recent, but still from the 1990s. I love uh, the book Refuge by Terry Tempest Williams. Uh, she's, that book um, has a lot going on. There's a lot of birds in that book, but uh, also a lot of her personal, personal family history. Her um, mother's dying of cancer. Uh, a migratory bird refuge is being flooded by the Great Salt Lake. Um, it takes place in Utah. And those are both nonfiction books. And they both take place in Utah, which is interesting. <laughs> but I don't have any real special connection to Utah um, except for those two books, I guess. But um, those are those are two of my favorites for sure. Uh, I also really like a book called Ecology of a Cracker Childhood by Janice Ray, um, which is uh, a memoir about her growing up in the longleaf pine ecosystem in uh, southern Georgia. So... Well, Most of my books that I that I really like are, are nonfiction or memoir. That's great. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us again, and congratulations on the book. And we look forward to seeing seeing you in April. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me and for um, for talking with me. And I'm really excited that that um, you know I get to come back and visit visit Center County, which is one of my favorite places. definitely looking for forward to Katie's visit on Thursday, April 4th, starting at 7.30 p.m. at the Nittany Lion Inn. It's a free event. And then if you get a chance, obviously, read Vulture, The Private Life of an Unloved Bird. As I mentioned earlier, we ha- now have uh, more copies at the library for patrons to, to take out. And then participate in some of the events. We have one coming up Saturday, February 23rd, starting at 2 p.m., uh, it's a winter bird walk at Millbrook Marsh Nature Center. And on Sunday, March 31st, Meet the Creek. This is an event at the at Shavers Creek Environmental Center. That was, Katie mentioned, her love of Shavers Creek in our interview. A roundtable discussion, The Changing Nature of Nature Writing, is taking place on Tuesday, March 12th, starting at 3.30 p.m. at Paternal Library up on the Penn State campus. Uh, of course, there's book discussion groups. There's writing the non-human writing contest. Submissions um, are being accepted for that until March 11th. Uh, categories: best uh, short fiction, best poetry, best nonfiction, and best entry for a writer under 18. So, chance to uh, win some uh, prizes there. Two hundred dollars is the grand prize. Um, we have brochures for Center County Reads at the library. You can pick it up. That has the list of events or just go to centercountyreads.org 
a list of uh, uh, has the list of all the events and book discussions that are going to be taking place between now and April fourth, Katie's visit. Some other events at the library coming up also Saturday, February twenty third at the library. The next Glow Labs will be taking place. It's taking a look at the Libby app for OverDrive eBooks. If you like eBooks, uh, this would be a good one to check out and learn more about the Libby app. On Sunday, March 24th, starting at 2.30 p.m., the Penn State Thespians are back. They'll be presenting Disney Melodies, so uh, they'll be taking place in our community room. They'll be singing some of the favorite Disney songs, for, and it's a concert for all ages. Also for our children's department, starting on Monday, February 25th, registration for the next Storytime sessions will begin, and on Wednesday, February 25th, February 27th, uh, registrations for the next uh, sessions for the Toddler Learning Center open. On Tuesday, February 26th, uh, the link, the Career Link, the Mobile Center, it will be back at in, parked in front of SCLO from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And, of course, a reminder, we have winter reading for teens and adults through the end of March, the Write and Illustrate Your Own Book Contest that the Children's Department holds is continuing uh, with submissions being accepted till March 12th. Um, and then, of course, all our services, Canopy, the free video streaming you can uh, get through your library card, uh, e-books, e-audio books, just so much. Um, all of it, uh, check out all the information and all of our events at sclolibrary.org. You can sign up for the e-newsletter, too, that's bi-monthly. The March-April one will be, getting, will be uh, sent out soon. So if you have, don't receive it and want to, uh, you can uh, get, uh, talk to someone in patron services to get your email added to the list, and uh, you'll get the March-April edition. And, of course, social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And this podcast, uh, please, you know, please, you know, rate it. If, if tell us how we're doing with it, uh, spread the word about it. Um, we continue to grow our audience and want to continue to do so. Really enjoy doing them, and we have a, uh, some great episodes coming up in the, over the next few weeks. Uh, e- new episodes drop each Wednesday. So until next time, we uh, hope to see you at Slow Library.